Hi. So I'm currently working on something that I knew was going to take a little bit longer to complete and that I really wanted to have done by the end of October. So I was planning on just working on that and I didn't think that I was going to put out any other like video or podcast episode or anything until that was finished. But I saw the Taylor Swift Eras tour on Friday and I just have a lot of feelings that I would like to express. As far as my review for the overall show and film go... Talented, brilliant, incredible, amazing, show-stopping, spectacular, never the same, totally unique, completely not ever been done before, unafraid to reference or not reference, put it in a blender, shit on it, vomit on it, eat it, give birth to it. Overall, my review isn't super important here. I liked the show, it was good, I thought the film was really well done, I'm very impressed by the fact that they got it finished so quickly, because... This was from three shows that were filmed in August. I have a personal theory for how the post-production got done so quickly, but that's also not really the point. The thing that I actually want to talk about is the fact that I pretty much cried throughout the whole concert. Not like full-on crying, but definitely very like teary and on the verge of crying throughout most of it. And then there was one part in particular where I was definitely definitely crying. And it was really like right away too. Like as soon as the title came up and the warning about seizures and flashing lights, I was already like done for. And that was kind of weird, especially because I'm not that much of a Swifty. I would say I could definitely be categorized as a Swifty or at least like Swifty adjacent, but I haven't been following her career for that long, at least not like in depth in the way that a stan would. I mean, when she first came out, she was doing country music, which is really not my thing. Though I would say I did still like her as far as like country music went. I grew up in a town where country music was like a big, big thing and I never liked it. And I was always kind of miserable when other people would play it, but I did find Taylor's work pretty tolerable, even enjoyable, but I only ever knew like her singles. I didn't listen to her albums or anything because it just wasn't my thing. And then as she got more pop, I did listen to her a little bit more, but I also went through a bit of an anti-Swifty phase. In my defense, she was doing some stuff back then that I thought was a little scuzzy, like sending cease and desist to Etsy stores who were using like trademarked phrases of hers, and even the fact that she was trademarking those phrases when they were kind of basic. Little weird, little greedy, it seemed to me. And then in the 2010s, Taylor and also like Beyonce and other female pop artists became kind of representative of a sort of pop feminism or marketplace feminism that I thought was pretty hollow. The primary problem being this movement to completely like depoliticize feminism that I just never really got down with. And then there was that blog post that someone wrote about Taylor where they accused her of kind of pandering toward white supremacists and then instead of like saying anything about that or defending herself in a way that seemed reasonable, Taylor just sent a cease and desist to that blogger, which I did not think was correct, I still don't think it was correct, and the ACLU agreed. So there was plenty of stuff during that time Taylor was doing that I think warranted some criticism, but she definitely experienced a pretty severe pile-on during that era that she never deserved and that 
I probably played a small part in. But for me, after, like, Donald Trump got put into office, I just couldn't really be bothered to care about pop feminism when, you know, there's a man in the White House who has allegedly assaulted and or raped and or sexually harassed multiple women. So Taylor's apolitical stances bothered me a lot less, and then she did actually start to get a little bit more political as the decade went on, and ultimately, no matter what I thought of her political stances or her public image, I just couldn't ever deny that she was making good pop music, and at the end of the day, that's all I really care about. So I'd say I started really appreciating her after the Netflix Reputation concert came out, and then when Lover came out, I was like a full-on fan. And then with Folklore and Evermore, I was like categorically a stan at that point. It's still kind of hard to fully identify as like a Taylor stan or a Swifty just because of the intensity of that group. I don't have enough like detailed knowledge of Taylor to really stand with the best of them, but I definitely like her a lot. So in the movie theater, I was crying almost like I had been like a day one Swifty which I haven't been. It almost felt like stolen valor or something to be so emotional about an artist that I only started standing about three years ago. But in interrogating why I felt the way that I did, I have thought a lot more about my relationship with other pop stars and my other standums. Because even though I haven't been standing Taylor for that long, I have been standing other people and just following pop music really closely since I was a kid. Obviously on this channel, I've done a lot of videos about Britney Spears. She was maybe like the first person that I stand-ish. She was the first pop star that I got exposed to and became really enamored with, but I got the Baby One More Time album when I was like three years old. I mean, maybe I was a little older when I actually got the album. I got it for Christmas at some point, but I was three when it was put out. So I was a very, like, small child during her, like, prime era. I always had a lot of respect for her as just a pop icon, but I didn't start, like, really, really looking into her career until, like, 2016 when Glory came out. I'd say the first person that I definitely stand was Hilary Duff because she was on Lizzie McGuire and I was the age appropriate for that. And then as I got older, her image kind of matured where it just kind of made sense for where I was at in my life. Like when the Dignity album came out, I thought it was so like cool and rebellious that she swore. And by swore, I mean she said damn like a couple times. I was 11. But then when I was 12, I was exposed to an artist that I have been absolutely obsessed with ever since. So the first time I heard Lady Gaga was in middle school in my choir class, and the teacher wanted us to like play songs that we could do for a choir concert, and someone played Poker Face. Now, how we would do that as a choir, I don't know. Middle schoolers are very, very stupid. But I was, like, obsessed right away. I remember I went home, I had an iTunes gift card at the time, I bought it on iTunes, I put it on my iPod, and the rest is history. It'd be really hard to overstate how important Lady Gaga is to me as a person. I always liked pop music, but at the time that she came out, liking pop music just wasn't really, like, cool. It was inauthentic and stupid and shallow. 
There were some boys that I went to school with where I remember getting into fights with them about whether or not choreographed dancing was real art. And I liked Gaga because she was such a defender of pop music and also just pop culture and celebrity culture. She used to say that she would read tabloids as textbooks and she seemed to like have this understanding of the philosophy of popular entertainment that just really resonated with me, especially as someone who like currently collects tabloids. So I always loved how Gaga talked about pop music and pop culture as something that could be incredibly meaningful. And I also just loved her theatrics. I loved all the details that went into creating the eras of her career. And back then, I think I had an expectation that she was gonna continue being this big, grandiose pop star for forever. But things definitely started to feel a little different after the art pop era, or even during it. Because if you look at the timeline from everything she had been doing for those first, like, four to five years of her career, she was doing so much just back to back to back that I don't think it would have been possible for her to not get burnt out. Like, August of 2008, she put out the Fame album. She was promoting that like crazy, doing performances in front of an Ikea, or at fashion shows, various festivals, Miss America, Saturday Night Live. The Fame Ball tour ran from May of 2009 until September. And then the next month, in October of 2009, she dropped Bad Romance. The next month after that, she dropped the Fame Monster EP. Then two months after wrapping up her last tour, she started a new tour, The Monster Ball, in November of 2009. Then that tour ran until May of 2011. But before that tour was even done, she released Born This Way, the single, in February of 2011. Then 17 days after The Monster Ball finished, she put out Born This Way, the album. Throughout 2011, she did a lot of televised performances, interviews, other kinds of public appearances, and then in the beginning of 2012, she started the Born This Way Ball Tour. That tour got wrapped a little bit early in February of 2013 when Gaga injured her hip. And I do think it's worth pointing out because I've seen people use this footage of Gaga from the last Born This Way ball where she seems to kind of double over in pain and try to say that that is the moment that she injured her hip, but that's not really true. It might have been the moment where Gaga realized the pain was so bad that she couldn't continue, but from everything she's ever said about the injury, it seems like she actually injured her hip way sooner, but then because she didn't want to postpone or cancel any of the shows, she just kept performing. It's possible that if she had rested a little bit sooner, she might not have had to get hip surgery at all, but I don't know, I'm not a doctor. That's just kind of my understanding of events. But I think it says a lot about how she was treating her body and prioritizing or not prioritizing her health around that time. And there's so much footage of her back then where she would be like, puking on stage, but then just keep going like it didn't happen. And at the time, I thought that was like really cool. And now, now I think about it and it just makes me sad for her. But so early 2013, she announces this hip injury and the postponement and eventual cancellation of the rest of her tour. And then she just went kind of quiet for a little bit. And I do mean like a little bit, but at the time for me, it felt like a really, really long time. 
Gaga had always been super interactive with her fans, especially on social media. She even had her own social media site called littlemonsters.com, and she was always uploading Gaga visions to her YouTube channel. She was always tweeting. She was just always so present. And then after the hip injury, she just kind of wasn't anymore, but only for like a couple months. Because Art Pop, the album, was then released in November of 2013, in the same year that she cancelled the Born This Way Ball. And not only do I think her doing so much for so long and so publicly was probably not good for her mental or physical health, it's also kind of just not good for her public image, or any female celebrity's public image, to be that public all the time. Because by the time Art Pop came out, she was getting shit from like every different direction, especially in stan culture. Madonna fans always kinda disliked her, but they really, really disliked her after Born This Way came out, because it sounded quite a lot like Express Yourself, and Madonna's statements about the similarities made it worse. It feels, uh, reductive. Is that good? Look it up. There was also some lingering resentments from Christina fans, especially after the flop of Bionic, because Christina spent so much of that time being compared to Gaga, despite the fact that Christina had been in the industry for so much longer than she had. And then the Lana Del Rey fans started to come at Gaga because there was this old song that Lana had written called So Legit that was definitely about Gaga. You're leaked, which started a whole thing between their fandoms. Then Gaga and Katy Perry were pitted against each other because the first single from Art Pop was coming out the same day as the first single for Katy's new album, Prism. That rivalry got so big, it was even the basis for an episode of Glee. The only fandoms that really weren't coming for Little Monsters was, like, the Beehive, because there was some camaraderie over the fact that Gaga and Beyonce had collaborated twice. And then Swifties at the time were mostly minding their business, and Gaga also spoke positively of Taylor, so there was no bad blood there. And then 2013 was the year that Britney Jean came out, so Britney stands were kind of just dealing with their own shit. But it actually got pretty bad, to the point that there were conspiracy theories about Gaga lying about her hip injury to cover up low-ticket sales for the Born This Way ball. But throughout this time, Gaga was continuously trying to address all of the negative things being said about her. She would go on these little, like, Twitter rants referencing the fact that people were calling her fat or saying that she was a Madonna copy. One of the promo videos she put up on her YouTube channel for Art Pop was called Lady Gaga is Over, and the video had all these text pop-ups that were just negative things people had said about her, like, she's irrelevant, and ever since born this way, she's a flop. Then she started the 2013 VMAs with, like, a booing track in her performance. So she was very, very much aware of the fact that a lot of the public was turning on her. And then it didn't get any better when Art Pop the album came out, and 
kind of undersold expectations, and also did worse with critics than any of her previous albums. And as much as Gaga's public image to that point was kind of built around her presentation as someone kind of eccentric and weird, it went like way past any sort of theatrical eccentricities during this era and just got into a territory of like genuinely strange. Like sometimes in interviews she would speak in this accent that I'm pretty sure doesn't exist like regionally. Art requires a discipline. Art requires a talent. Art requires a passion and a desire to make a statement that is rooted in a revolution. Uh, an insatiable need to make a statement about something that you believe is a connection to something higher, a spiritual connection. Uh, so I would say that this um, ass is exactly that. It's an ass for you to buy. And that was still better than the times where she would just stop talking completely during interviews. There was really a, a void of vanity. And so, and as the blood rushed out of my body, um, how do I explain it? Outside of just public appearances, the whole album cycle just became a complete mess. She fired her management, I think, either right before the album came out or right before the tour started. Either way, it was, like, bad timing. And that relationship definitely didn't seem to end amicably. And at the beginning of the era, she put out this app, the Art Pop app, that had a whole bunch of different features that were supposed to be released at some point. Some of them were even already on the app with like a countdown to their premiere, but then when the countdown ran out, nothing happened. But all that is still pretty tame compared to the biggest controversy from the era. Trigger warning for this, I'm not gonna go into explicit detail, but We've got to talk a little bit about sexual assaults here. So a couple years ago, Gaga opened up about her early, early time in the industry and her experience being raped repeatedly at age 19 by a record producer. She said that that PTSD led her to have a psychotic breakdown a few years after. I don't know when specifically this breakdown occurred, but I would guess probably around the art pop era. The album is the first time where Gaga even references a sexual assault with her song Swine, so I think it's pretty likely that this is probably around the time that she first started to process what had happened to her. And unfortunately, there is another song on this album that also seems to reference a sexual assault but she didn't say that at the time. Cause when Do What You Want With My Body, featuring R. Kelly first came out, Gaga was insistent that the song was actually about the media and its relationship with the artist. Actually, to explain the, the meaning of this song, oh, yes. just so that you understand, oh, yeah. is, is that, you know, uh, the public can really, really scrutinize uh, and harass the artist. And my point is, is that 
if, if you're going to harass the artist, this is, this is the death of, of entertainment. It's the death of show business. So uh, it is my way of stating my power that you can't have my heart and you can't have my mind. So do what you want with my body. So that was the meaning behind it, just yeah. so you know. It's, you You're know, it's... a clever girl. Gaga was met with a lot of criticism, not just over the song's lyrics, but also her choice in collaborators. Not even just R. Kelly, though that is bad enough, but also Terry Richardson, a photographer who Gaga had worked with a lot previously. And Terry worked with like every female celebrity at the time. If you were on Tumblr in the 2010s, you have almost certainly seen one of his photos. And if you've seen Miley Cyrus's 2013 video for Wrecking Ball, you've seen one of his videos. So there were a lot of people working with Terry in the 2010s, but there were also some allegations against him that were becoming increasingly public. And he was set to direct the Do What You Want video, which has never been released in full, but was filmed. TMZ, who can get their hands on seemingly anything, got a hold of the footage a little bit later, and it's not good. Gaga said the video got scrapped due to a mismanagement in time, but there are rumors that it actually got scrapped because she learned of the allegations against Terry. She's never addressed that directly, but she has addressed her collaboration with R. Kelly. After surviving R. Kelly came out a few years later, she wrote on Twitter, What I am hearing about the allegations against R. Kelly is absolutely horrifying and indefensible. As a victim of sexual assault myself, I made both the song and video at a dark time in my life. My intention was to create something defiant and provocative because I was angry and still hadn't processed the trauma that had occurred in my own life. The song is called Do What You Want With My Body. I think it's clear how explicitly twisted my thinking was at the time. She since removed Do What You Want featuring R. Kelly from streaming services and any future pressings of the album, but I find it really hard to believe that it took her that long to discover that R. Kelly was a predator. Maybe she didn't understand the full extent of his crimes at the time, but the allegations against R. Kelly were always kind of public. By the time Gaga was collaborating with him, he had already tried to marry a teenage Aaliyah, had been caught on video peeing on an underage girl, and had been discovered to have child pornography in his home. Maybe she didn't know all the details, but she definitely would have known that R. Kelly was like a bad guy. And with Terry Richardson, Maybe she didn't know any specific allegations had been lobbied against him, but I think it would have been pretty obvious that he was kind of a creepy dude. Now, what I personally think happened during that time is I think that Do What You Want With My Body was somewhat of a defense mechanism for Gaga. If she could convince herself that the assault on her physical body didn't matter, that maybe she could overcome the trauma of being assaulted. In that way, I don't really think that the collaborations with R. Kelly and Terry Richardson were just coincidental. I think that somewhere in her mind, she decided that it would be empowering for her to sing those lyrics in front of industry predators. No matter the specifics, Gaga was clearly dealing with something at the time and seemed to be kind of spiraling. So after the art pop era ended, Gaga didn't really go away, 
but her public image transformed dramatically. The next album she did was Cheek to Cheek with Tony Bennett, which is just a full-on jazz album. And then she did this Sound of Music medley at the Oscars, which showed off her more, like, traditional talents as a vocalist. And then she came back with another pop album, technically, but this one was definitely quite a lot different and seemed to be courting a pretty different audience. And then she did the Super Bowl, which was so catered to middle America that even Republicans liked it. This is Lady Gaga. In the past, Gaga has shown up to events and eggs and even meat. She has an interesting sense of fashion, controversial lyrics, and affinity for shock and awe, and yes, she has political opinions. But on Super Bowl Sunday, America's game day, Lady Gaga chose to keep her political opinions and or distaste for the president to herself. How about a round of applause, a hallelujah, and a thank you, Jesus? Then she started moving into acting, first with American Horror Story, and then with A Star is Born. A lot of the stuff Gaga was doing at the time was really well received, but a lot of that newfound success was kind of at the expense of her pop career. Especially with A Star is Born, which as a film has some very clear anti-pop sentiments. At times it almost feels like it's straight up making fun of pop music, which is a little bit weird when one of its stars is someone who once wore glasses that said pop music will never be lowbrow. In her public appearances, Gaga started taking on this more like classic Hollywood image, all while drooling over Bradley Cooper, who is the kind of man that straight men think women think is hot. A very like Ryan Reynolds kind of appeal. And that's fine. If she really was hitting it off with Bradley Cooper, then good for her. But just persona-wise, Lady Gaga as a public figure seemed to be allying herself more and more with a different part of American culture than she had previously been associated with. And that's kind of kept up with her work after A Star Is Born. She did another album with Tony Bennett. She did the Ridley Scott movie House of Gucci, which even though that movie is about a fashion house, seems completely disinterested in the world of fashion. More recently, she was cast as Harley Quinn in the upcoming Joker movie, the first movie of which was like low-key in Selly. And she worked heavily on the soundtrack for Top Gun. And now she did make a brief return to dance pop in 2020 with her album Chromatica, but that was definitely, definitely very brief. Of every musical project that Gaga has ever released, it might have gotten the least amount of promo, and I'm including her work on the Top Gun soundtrack. That might be a little bit of an exaggeration, since she did eventually tour the album, but let it be noted that the final song on that tour set list is a song from the Top Gun soundtrack. Now you can try to blame the lack of promo for Chromatica on the pandemic, but Dua Lipa's album Future Nostalgia came out around the same time and Dua did do a full album cycle promo campaign for it. There absolutely were ways for Gaga to make some sort of big album era for that time. She just chose not to do that. And that is absolutely her right. She is under no obligation to promote her music in any specific way. 
but her fans aren't obligated to like the direction her career is going in. It's absolutely fine to be disappointed that she doesn't seem to have an interest in being a pop star anymore. And most of my grievances are completely personal. It makes me sad that she doesn't seem to want to make pop music anymore, at least not the kind of pop music that she had been making. I'm sad just because I liked that and I miss it. But then I also have some frustrations from a more, like, ideological framework. One of the things that I remember her saying during the promo for Joanne is that she was really excited to work with people like Mark Ronson and some of the other producers who were on that album because she felt like she could be in a room with heterosexual men that were all respecting her and that is really nice, and I completely understand why she would feel that way. But the way that her career has kind of moved in a direction that seems more catered to heterosexual men than before, and she's also now getting taken more seriously on a widespread scale than she was previously, is a little frustrating as part of her original audience that didn't need her to do, like, stripped-back analog music in order to take her seriously. And that's not really Gaga's fault, that's more of just, like, the culture, where people, for some reason, didn't recognize that she's an incredible vocalist until she did a Sound of Music medley, despite the fact that she's been singing with the same voice, but just doing pop music for years prior. Where I get a little more frustrated with Gaga individually, is in how she is and isn't interacting with her own fan base anymore. In the first years of her career, Gaga was always talking about how much she loved her fans and how everything she did was for them, to the point where she didn't even want to be seen in, like, normal clothing because that would mean that her fans would see her outside of, like, the theatrical Gaga. And I always thought that was super toxic to begin with, and that she shouldn't feel so much pressure to be this, like, big, grand thing just for her fan base. But she still created this really, like, personal and deep connection with her fans to the point that she had her own social media site just specifically for those fans. They feel like they know her on a personal level, and they feel like they owe her some level of devotion. So I find it a little disrespectful and a little exploitative when I go onto her social media now, and like 80% of the things she posts, maybe even more, is just advertisements for her makeup brand. It's like, you know that's not what a majority of the fans following you are following you for. And it'd be one thing if the products were completely disconnected from her music, but they're not. Case in point, the Stupid Love Palette, which is named after the first single from Chromatica as if it's meant to, like, promote the album in any sort of way, despite the fact that the color palette looks nothing fucking like anything you would see in the Chromatica video. Like, what are all these blues for? It just feels like a cheap way to get your fans who are excited about your album to purchase something that really has nothing to do with the album. Because House Labs isn't just a separate business venture where Gaga is trying to get a separate audience, she's trying to use the audience she currently has, even though that's not really what they're interested in. And for the record, I didn't buy the palette for the name, I bought it because I actually did just want a palette of blues, but it's like not a good formula at all.
But then I got really annoyed the other day when I opened my email and I had an advertisement for the House of Labs concealer, which I thought was weird because I was pretty sure that I had never signed up for any sort of House of Labs newsletter. And when I look at the email that sent it, it says info at us.umusic-online.com. So I think years ago, I signed up just for, like, a Lady Gaga newsletter to get updates about her music, especially because it says at us.umusic, and House of Labs is just using the same email list to send advertisements for makeup. And I just think that that's really annoying. And then Gaga got a whole bunch of backlash a little bit ago when she posted a photo from the Chromatica Ball onto her Instagram, which because Gaga's fans know that one of the Chromatica Ball shows was filmed theoretically for some sort of concert special, she hasn't posted any photos from the Chromatica Ball since it was on tour, and even then she barely posted anything. So why would she be using a photo from it now if not to make an announcement about something related to that tour? Well, because she wanted to use it to sell a prescription migraine medication. So there are aspects of the way that Gaga is using her public platform currently that rub me the wrong way and feel a little disrespectful. But my petty frustrations with her aside, I really don't blame her for being at a greater distance from her own audience now than she was a decade ago. Clearly, the way that Gaga was maintaining her public image and her interactions with her fans and with the media as a whole a long time ago was just unsustainable. And as much as I do miss Gaga the pop star, I completely understand why she's made this switch to acting and other business ventures because she got so fucked over by the music industry. I mean, she was literally assaulted by a producer. And as she was starting to process some of that trauma, her career was kind of at a low point in terms of her public image. And it wasn't even just, like, mainstream culture that was coming for her. It was a lot of, like, stan communities specifically. I do get a little worried when I hear about her talking about the process she's taking for her movie roles. It still kind of seems like she's putting her work above her mental health to a degree. But I kind of wonder if her returning to life as a pop star might just be kind of re-triggering for a lot of her trauma that she experienced at the beginning of her career. On the day that I'm recording this, a whole bunch of information from Britney Spears' book is now becoming public, despite the fact that the book is, like, a week out. But I guess in the book, Britney talks a bit about the conservatorship she was under and how it affected her relationship with her career. So one part says, The conservatorship stripped me of my womanhood, made me into a child. I became more of an entity than a person on stage. I had always felt music in my bones and my blood. They stole that from me. Thirteen years went by with me feeling like a shadow of myself. I think back now on my father and his associates having control over my body and my money for that long and it makes me sick. Think of how many male artists gambled all their money away. How many had substance abuse or mental health issues. No one tried to take away their control over their bodies and money. I didn't deserve what my family did to me. 
And around the time that Britney was freed from her conservatorship, Vogue put out this article that I think about sometimes. It is called, For LGBTQ Fans, Free Britney is Personal and Pivotal. And in it, they talk about the death of gay icons like Judy Garland, and towards the end, they say, For her LGBTQ plus fans, Free Britney feels like a chance to halt a cycle of tragedy. Scratching beneath the surface, there is guilt not just about how Spears has been mistreated, but also for the long lineage of women who were failed in life and are now idolized in retrospect. We can reject this narrative by rejecting the idea that the demise of queer icons, particularly women, is somehow inevitable. And I think a lot of people in the gay community and also the pop stan community are very aware of the fact that women get torn down so much in the media, sometimes even by the gay community and the pop stan community themselves. And even though a lot of us participate in it from time to time, Ultimately, I do think those communities are mostly rooting for a lot of these women. As I've made a lot of content in the last, like, year defending Amber Heard, I've realized that there does seem to be a lot of overlap with Amber Heard supporters and with pop stands. I think it's pretty telling that if you go on to Reddit, the two communities who I see defending Amber Heard the most is the Dep Delusion subreddit, which that makes sense, because that's their whole subreddit, that's their thing. And then the Do Moy subreddit. Because who's more qualified to recognize the media's unfair treatment toward a woman in the spotlight than the communities of people who are paying the most attention to celebrity culture? But it still seems like the best a lot of these maligned women are able to do because of the culture they're in is just escape extremely abusive situations with their lives, even if they or their lives are forever changed afterward. Britney was put into a conservatorship that abused and traumatized her to the point that she doesn't know if she's ever gonna perform again. Gaga broke her hip and now experiences chronic pain. And I don't think a relationship with pop music is ever gonna go back to what it was. And Amber Heard has been essentially blacklisted from the film industry and had to move to Spain to get away from harassment. So yes, these women have thus far managed to escape the tragic endings that have befallen the women before them, but it still seems like for a lot of women in the spotlight, your options are incredibly limited. You can be like Beyonce and only appear in public selectively so that you don't risk overexposure. You can be like Britney or Amber and narrowly escape an abusive situation with your life, and then best case scenario become so publicly humiliated that enough people feel bad for you, you become pity porn. Or you can be like Gaga who has managed to rebuild her career and gain a new level of respect, but but only really by disconnecting herself emotionally from her previous audience and pivoting toward a new public image and work that's a little less off-putting to heterosexual men. Taylor Swift might be the first woman I've ever seen go through some of the same trials and tribulations in the media that a lot of the women before her did without having to reinvent herself to become even more successful than she ever was. Like a lot of pop stars before her, Taylor Swift and her dominantly female audience were not taken very seriously for a long time. She was written off for a while as just making music for dumb preteen girls. Now she's one of the most critically acclaimed songwriters of her generation, and she managed 
managed to do it while retaining an audience of dominantly young women. Midway through her career, she got sued for defamation after alleging a sexual assault, and then she countersued and won. In 2016, two of the most famous people in the world accused her of lying about a phone call, kickstarting the hashtag Taylor Swift is over party, and getting people to post a bunch of snake emojis on her social media accounts. So she started incorporating the snake imagery into her work, and years later has a better public reputation than either of the people that tried to expose her. Her label sold ownership of her catalog to someone that she hated without giving her enough notice to stop it. So she re-recorded all of her old albums and is now breaking records with the re-records. It is just really so nice to see how big and successful Taylor Swift has been able to become without ever having to compromise her power. I didn't think that the world was ever going to allow a woman this public to be this successful. Now she's filming her concerts without any sort of big studio backing. It's literally all her. She gets to get bigger, she gets to celebrate her accomplishments, and she gets to do it with the same audience that she came into the business with. And while I do worry a little bit about her getting burnt out, considering the amount of things she's doing right now, she also looks so happy, and it doesn't seem like she's lost any passion for music or performing or just being a celebrity. I wish more women could have had the success that Taylor Swift is currently having, but I'm glad that she is, because she seems like a nice person, and she's also just a really good pop star.